we take the same courses we are taught by you know the same teachers but when it came to elections our parents kind of viewed each other as the enemy that was Meshach Samati and you are tuned in to the peace frequency Hello and welcome to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and today we are broadcasting from our studio at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Joining me in studio today is my co-host for today's episode, Lily Cole. Lily is a senior program officer here at USIP, where she directs our fellows program. So Lily, thanks for co-hosting with me today. And our guest is USIP peace scholar, Mishak Samanti, uh, Samati, a PhD candidate in political science at Georgia State University. His dissertation is titled The False Promise of the Judiciary in Reducing Election Violence Among African Countries. So Mishak, thanks for sitting down with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lily, I would love for you to tell us about the USIP Peace Scholars Program, which you direct and of which, of course, Mishak is a part. But I first want to take us behind your bio for a little bit. And we start all of our episodes with a question that can give us some insight into uh, who you are, your character, what inspires you, and just learn something about you that we wouldn't necessarily get from a bio that we find of you online. So the question, and and I pose this to other people in, in previous episodes, is this. If you could pick one specific moment from your life, and you could capture that moment in a photograph or a painting, and then you would hang that painting above your bed, so it's the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning, and it's the last thing that you see when you go to bed at night, what would that specific <coughs> moment be? Yeah, th- thanks, Darren. Um, so for me, I think uh, that moment would be uh, my wife and uh, our three sons. And uh, I say this because I first met my wife when we were in college together, and um, we never knew that we would actually date, and, uh, you know, Three or so years down the line, I was able to come to the U.S. and we reconnected, <clears throat> and uh, so we, we ended up getting married. And we have three uh, beautiful boys. And so every time, uh, you know, when you're writing your dissertation and you want to be able to kind of get away from that, you know, those are the people that I kind of go to and try to to have that moment with. And so every evening or every night I go to bed, uh, those are the people that really matter to me. And so those are the moments I think that really matter to me in the morning and the evening. That's great. Is there like a specific like image you have of something that you did with your wife and your three boys um, that you can paint for us in terms of maybe something you do, you know, a routine that you all have in the morning or in the evening or someplace that you've gone or traveled that, that would be in that picture? Yeah, sure. So um, so first of all, uh, so let me maybe explain a little bit about uh, how I ended up getting back in contact with my wife. Yes, uh, please, my, please. Wife, my wife now. <laughs> so when we met in college, uh, she came to Kenya as an exchange student, and I was a, you know, a student there at Daystar University. Uh, she came there, we became friends, and then uh, you know she came back to the U.S. And uh, one year later, I got a scholarship to actually come and finish my undergrad in the U.S. And so we got in contact, but then we lost contact for, for three years. And then I found out that she had sent me an email uh, 
uh, two years or so, and I never saw that email. Wow. So one evening, it was on a Christmas Eve, I really thought I wanted to be able to get in contact with her, and I pick up my phone and I call. And usually she lives uh, in, a, in rural Oregon where she doesn't get you know, cell phone reception. And so I call and she picks up and we talk for one hour and we decided that we we're gonna start dating and five months later we got married. <laughs> wow. wow. So so that moment and then um and one of the things that my wife and, and the kids do, uh, you know, like every Saturday morning, you know, we we go uh, to <laughs> I hope it's like my our favorite restaurant for for pancakes. The International House of Pancakes. So that's yes, right, definitely. Okay. <laughs> so we we do that every morning, and it's one of those times where we do that, and then we after that we go to the park or we go to the zoo. Um, so really, just having that Saturday to spend time with you know my wife and the kids, and then on Sunday, of course, we we, we go to fellowship at our our church. Uh, you know, closer to our house. So those are some of the things that I think uh, I value so much that would definitely make it into that portrait if I were to paint it. That's awesome. That's awesome. You got to dig up that email too that uh, went went. Uh, I found it. I years. found it after I had married her. Because <laughs> oh she was telling me, I emailed you. I said, I never saw that email. And so digging through my email after we had get, got married, then I found that email she had actually sent me, trying to get hold of me, trying to look for my number. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And I can, I can see um, the, the five of you sitting at IHOP right now. It's a beautiful image. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so Lily, tell us a little bit about the Peace Scholars Program. Our listeners may not be familiar with it. So what is it? What kinds of scholars does it seek out? And in what ways does it support them? Uh, thanks so much, Darren. That's, um, it's great to be here in part of the podcast series. So USIP has, for many years, since um, at least uh, about 1989, had a program supporting uh, pre-doctoral students. Uh, that is, people working on their dissertations. <clears throat> and they have come from all over the world, but they are uh, required to be doing their dissertations in programs in American universities. And I think we've had, must be at least 300 students or more uh, alumni of the program at this point. It's, it's very competitive, and they get uh, a year support. The winners of the program uh, get, about, get uh, a support for 10 months of work on their, on their dissertations. And we, over the years, have looked to help build the field and top-notch uh, scholarly talent in the field and to support people whose work is relevant for, um, for policy and practice, as well as being uh, very strong uh, academically and in theory and in methodology and um, things like that. We have sponsored um, a huge range of topics and work on a complete range of countries, except for the United States. We actually um, are not allowed by our mandate to do any work on conflict within the United States. I don't know if everybody knows that, although uh, we've done a lot of work on US foreign policy. Um, but uh, the, um, the range of topics is very interesting. It often reflects the times as the years go by over uh, wherever uh, violence and conflict were of greatest um, concern in the world. But uh, that is the program that Mishak is uh, uh, a part of this year through our usual uh, quite competitive 
um, uh, process of selecting the Peace Scholars, and we're very proud of them. And over the years, uh, almost without exception, they've gone on to great careers, most in academia, but some others in other parts of the world of peace building as well. That's great. So there have been a lot of USIP Peace Scholars that have gone through this program, are part of it this year, yet um, Mishak is the one who's sitting with us right now at this mm -hmm. table, so I'm certain that everyone is doing amazing work. I have no doubts about that. Mm -hmm. Yet Mishak is the one sitting here at the table, so is there something in particular about Mishak's dissertation that uh, you wanted to make sure we kind of captured in, in, and made part of the podcast series? Um, well, we found the topic uh, very interesting and original, as you'll hear, and it is worth mentioning that um, uh, I think an interest in electoral violence has been a staple of uh, the, the, uh, the world of um, international studies for quite a while, but it's definitely been on the rise at the U.S. Institute of Peace in the last couple of years. Uh, my colleague uh, Jonas Clays has, uh, has uh, taken a new look at this field and worked on uh, charting, um, actually mapping the different practices that we know of that are used to reduce uh, electoral violence and to try to see if we can find out which ones work the best. So that's really kind of uh, field-based evaluative work. So uh, the topic fit particularly nicely with work we're doing at USIP, and we don't always require that with our winners, but uh, often there is a convergence with our own work, so uh, that was very nice. And um, we, were, we were interested in, in knowing more about also, I think, not only the work itself, but what inspired Meshach to, to actually uh, take on this topic. How did he pick it from the universe of possible topics? Um, and uh, how does he hope to use it in the future, maybe for broader work in, in peace building? That's great. Well, let's dive deeper into this electoral violence issue uh, Lily, you've got some questions. Why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, that was the first one. So, Meshach, how um, how did you get interested in the issue of elections and electoral violence? Does it go, does it start uh, after you've become a graduate student in political science, or does it go all the way back to uh, earlier time in your life when you were a college student or growing up in Kenya? So, uh, <clears throat> thanks, Lily. I think every Kenyan literally who's uh, been around since Kenya started experiencing with a multi-party democracy in 1992, um, the first election, would tell you that uh, at least they have seen some form of election violence, whether it's uh, before elections or during elections or after elections. So for me, um, I was able to actually uh, see the first time pre-election violence in 1992, and I was literally just a uh, studying high school and I saw that and so it kind of I wondered why uh, when we when we are in school we come from different ethnic groups you know we 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 we, we take the same courses we are taught by you know the same teachers but when it came to elections our parents kind of viewed each other as the enemy so why is it that at certain points where it's convenient enough for us to view each other's brothers or sisters but when it comes to uh, political contestation, we then start viewing each other's enemy based on who, who you are supporting. You have, especially Kenya has 42. It used to have 42 different uh, ethnic groups, but now we have uh, 44. And so for the most part, you're gonna see a lot of difference in, in, the, in the languages that we speak. 
and also we are geographically uh, located in the sense that in the western part you'll find uh, the Luya community uh, in central you'll find the Gikui community and then you go in the Rift Valley you will find uh, you know the Kalenjins you go to the coast you will find uh, you know the Mijikendas and Pokomo, so different ethnic groups that are actually disparately sort of uh, distributed within the country. And so you find that for the most part, when you end up in a certain region, uh, whether you're buying land there or you're working there, uh, that is not necessarily your original or ancestral home. Uh, and so, so those kind of dynamics are what interested me to see why then uh, certain ethnic communities started victimizing others they viewed as not belonging especially around uh, election time mm -hmm. well take us back a, a little bit um and can you share with us <clears throat> what electoral violence is broadly um and why is this something that that people should care about so um so, so Election violence, you can you can think of it as uh, either being uh, you know happening before elections or during election or after elections, and so this is essentially where either the incumbent or the the ruling party actually uses certain techniques to be able to disenfranchise certain parts of the country they feel they might not be able to get enough votes from, um, and so especially like in Kenya, what happened in 1992 and 1997, we had uh, what is called land clashes. But scholars have actually demonstrated that the land clashes whereby, uh, you know, people come and burn your house and, and so uh, then they, 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 they drive you out of your house, they take your cow, they, they burn down your crop. So literally you have nowhere to stay in order to vote. Uh, okay. So basically what they do is they make certain areas homogenous. So, for instance, if this is an area that the incumbent or the president feels like it's the, the, he's going to get most votes, but then there are certain pockets within the, uh, that area where the opposition might be also be able to get votes and maybe stop him from getting at least 25% within that constituency, mm -hmm. what they do then is they try to drive those people out of those areas in order to drive up the vote for them, but suppress the vote for the opposition. Hmm. And so that can happen uh, pre-election, you know, before elections actually uh, take place, or it can happen on election day, and it can also happen after, you know, the casting on the vote. Now, what I'm interested in is post-election violence, violence that happens after you have cast your vote, okay. and especially for the opposition candidates who are unhappy with the outcome of the elections, uh, specifically because they either feel that uh, the election was stolen or there were massive electoral fraud. Okay. And I want to go back. You were saying earlier that when you were in high school, <clears throat> you that's when you began to realize, hey, we're brothers and sisters here. We go to school together. We study the same things. But our parents are feuding with each other, and we're hearing these things in our homes that aren't necessarily represented in my school. Is that something that you personally had experience with, with like your own family, that you saw that disconnect between what you were doing and the friends that you had in school versus what you heard in the home? Yes. And uh, I, I have to also say my, my, dad is a, my dad is a religious man. He's a pastor of a church. Okay. But I could still see that he had a preference on the, on the kind of candidate that we should support as a family. Now, we never got involved in election violence, uh, but I saw 
people who lived with among our community are actually you know being driven out you know mm -hmm. uh, their houses being burnt by some people we we, we didn't necessarily know mm -hmm. interesting interesting so, Meshach, um, can you say a little more about Kenya's specific experience of election violence for those listeners who don't follow this issue closely? Maybe just um, give us sort of a timeline, because you've mentioned mm -hmm. a couple of times 92, so that sounds, seems like a, maybe an important starting point. But uh, could you maybe just give us a sense of the sort of the big picture of the landscape of election violence? Yeah, there? sure, sure. So, so Kenya, like um, most African countries, started experiencing with uh, multi-party politics uh, in 1990. So most of the African countries, uh, you know, after the Cold War ends, uh, we have the structural adjustment programs that actually force a lot of the African countries now to be able to open up their political space uh, to allow uh, dissenting voices, and in this case, allowing uh, more than one party system. Now, for the longest time since independence in 1963, Kenya had been under one-party system. So 1992 is the first time we actually have uh, a multi-party, I mean, an election where we have more than one party competing for the seat. Okay. But it's quite interesting because in 1992, uh, we had uh, the, the, the founding father of our opposition party, parties in Kenya, you know, um, Jaramogi Ogni Odinga, uh, forming uh, the Forum for the Restoration of Democracy. And so that was like the front, uh, the, the front line of the opposition that was actually uh, going to go against the ruling party, KANU, uh, Kenya National Union, uh, Kenya, uh, Kenya African National Union. So the ruling party was KANU, the opposition was Ford. But one of the things that happened is... Um, the, the, the president was able to, the president at the time was able to actually uh, fractionalize the opposition. So, mm. <laughs> you know, if you look at some of the research that has already been written about that is um, they came together as one single united opposition party, but three months or so before elections, they had all divided and each person had formed their own political party. Mm. And you also see that in Benin. Uh, a lot of African countries with, with the, the presidents who are still in power actually divided the opposition so they could not be able to come together as one party and be able to present a united front. Mm -hmm. So one of the other ways also, like I mentioned, is in some of those areas that were deemed um, maybe a little bit diverse because they would uh, influence the vote of the opposition or, uh, or benefit the opposition in the Rift Valley, uh, in parts of Western Kenya, and also in, in, in the coast, those areas experience a lot of uh, land-based violence. So what we, we, we call that land clashes, but actually those clashes happened right before elections in order to be able to kick out some of the people that would have necessarily voted for the opposition. And so 1992 is the first time Kenya experienced with multi-party politics, but then we have massive pre-election violence. Mm -hmm. 1997 is again the second election since, you know, multi-party mm -hmm. politics. We also have massive pre-election violence again in those areas of Rift Valley, uh, Western, and in, in, in the coast. And is, 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 are these tactics, this <clears throat> pre-election violence, is this orchestrated 
from the top or is it a grassroots effort? Like who comes up with and organizes these tactics? So the research shows it's actually driven from the top. The, the elites uh, through the, his own people on the ground will be able to influence this, 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 okay. uh, this election violence. And actually, um, for the longest time, we had uh, militias, so which are allied to certain politicians. We had, uh, you know, Mungiki, you know, we had uh, Jeshilamze, we had different militia groups that are actually affiliated to certain politicians, and those are the ones that would be used to fund some of this violence in, in those local places. Interesting. Okay, so sorry, 1997 now. Yes. So 1997, and um, and so Moi had served his two terms as part the constitutional stipulation. He wasn't going to run again in 2002, and so this is actually the first election in Kenya where we we, we Kenyans go to the polls and they elect uh, Moi Kibaki without necessarily any significant election violence, both in the pre-election and the post-election period. And uh, one of the factors for that actually maybe explains that a little bit why we didn't have election violence at that time is because the incumbent was not running anymore. I mean, he okay. had chosen a successor, the current president, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, who was uh, called the Moi Project. Moi was the mm -hmm. president of Kenya at the time. So he literally handpicked Uhuru Kenyatta to be his successor on the Kanu party. But um, the... The senior politicians within the ruling party were disenchanted with Moi picking someone out of the political from from literally from the from corporate Kenya and uh. putting him in position as opposed to picking one of them, and so there was a lot of disaffection uh, from the senior politicians in the party, and so they kind of got out mm. and uh, were able to join forces with the opposition mm. and literally uh, you know win uh, the election for that time. So 2002, and then uh, Kibaki, who won the 2002 election, had uh, entered into a memorandum of understanding with the other politicians, namely Raila Odinga, Kalonzo Musioka, um, that he was going to be a one-term president. But 2007 came, and he still wanted to run. <laughs> of course, yes, of course. So uh, that was... The single most uh, the, the single most election that actually Kenya went to with a uh, with a very significant post-election violence reported, you know, more than you know, fifteen hundred people died, six hundred thousand people internally displaced, uh, because uh, Raila Odinga, who was the uh, the opposition candidate, was he he maintained that the election had been stolen, and and, and literally. For anyone who was following the election, you would be able to see that Raila was winning and then all of a sudden his votes stopped coming in and then the incumbent started literally overtaking him. And so the electoral commissioner was also on record and he said he doesn't know who won that election. And so in the middle of the night, Justice Gisheru, um, you know, swears in uh, the president. Mikey Baki and Kenyans go out on the street. Raila calls out his people on the streets, and it was massive, massive, um, you know, street protests, and uh, which eventually led to the state apparatus interve intervening and uh, literally shooting people uh, to kill. 
Where were you when all this was happening? So in 2007, I was in this country. Mm. Yes, I was in Kenya. I had gone to Kenya. I went to Kenya in 2006, but I came back. Okay. And uh, this was all <laughs> happening while I was uh, in the U.S. And did you have family and stuff back in, yes, in Kenya? And were I you have. communicating with them while oh, this yes. was going on? And yes. what what was their experience like? What were you hearing from them when this was happening? And how did you feel knowing that you were, you know, thousands of miles away, but this was happening in your home country? So that was a, it was interesting on, on two dimensions. The first dimension is, uh, for for me being here, hearing what was going going on in Kenya, and actually what ended up happening is the, the state cut off uh, TVs from transmitting all the violence that was happening. Hmm. So the only information you would get is if you call someone on the cell phone and they tell you this was going on. What we eventually find out is um, uh, literally they, they had this militia of people standing on the side of the road, uh, blockading the road. A bus comes down, they stop it, and they ask you to get out, you show your identity card, and based on your last name, they know whether you are for the opposition or you are for the ruling party. Mm. And literally they were cutting people with machetes and killing them. Women and kids were burnt. They had actually went to seek refuge in a church and people just set up a church on fire. So a lot of really, really bad things happened. Um, now, in my area in Western Kenya, we were spared that violence uh, because that the, for the post-election violence, it, it happened in Rift Valley, uh, Mombasa, and in Nairobi. Okay. So most of the western part of Kenya was kind of spared of that, um, you know, bloodshed that happened there. But what I also observed from me being here in the diaspora is my relationship with the other people in the the other Kenyans in the hmm. diaspora kind of was different. Hmm. People that are from different uh, communities that were friends with me, it, the dynamics started changing in the sense that we almost even turned on each other here. Wow. And yet, all that action was happening in Kenya. But as far as we moved as we were, we started kind of recruiting, I mean, retreating to our own uh, you know, ethnic affiliations. We have a question from one of our colleagues here at USIP, Debbie Liang Fenton who does a lot of work on um, preventing electoral violence. And she would love for you to tell us more about the recent election in mm -hmm. Kenya and what are your views on the Kenyan Supreme Court nullifying the results? So maybe for our listeners, explain to us briefly kind of why the results were nullified and mm -hmm. then tell us what, what your thoughts are on that. Yes. So um, I think I stopped with the 2007 election in which I experienced a lot of post-election violence. Yes. But then we fast forward to 2012, uh, there was no significant election violence either, you know, during or pre or post. And, you know, the current president, Uhuru Kenyatta, and his uh, deputy, William Ruto, were, of course, on trial at The Hague for the violations of human rights that had happened in 2007. Mm -hmm. And so people have argued that maybe we didn't have post-election violence or pre-election violence because essentially the looming international law you know was was kind of mitigated that what happened in 2017 was when the results came out supporters of Raila Odinga the opposition candidate went out on the street to this uh, to express their displeasure at the election they thought had been stolen uh, from their candidate and the response of the the government that they, they literally repressed that 
um, uh, the protests and literally they were going into houses like beating up and killing people like one of the a baby i think a nine six month or nine month old baby was killed when she was in her mother's arms mm -hmm. they went into the house so this was not um the protests actually like picking up machetes and and trying to fight people they thought did not vote for their candidate it was the response of uh, the government to the protests that were or going on um but back to how the election um, you know happened and, and the outcome and how the outcome ended up being cancelled uh, you i think it's also fair to be to to remind my our listeners that um with the history of disputed election outcomes in kenya what the legislative branch along with the executive and to a large extent the judiciary have done is to be able to put um, measures in place that ensure that maybe we have free, fair and credible elections. So 2017, one of the key things that was put in place was uh, being able to transmit elections, um, the election out uh, results electronically. Yeah. And I'll have to tell you that <laughs> in Africa, when you... When you go to cast your ballot, you cast your ballot and you leave, and these ballots are carried in, a, in the back of a van uh, to go to the headquarters. Along the way, some of the ballots lose the ballots, some of the ballot box, boxes lose the ballots, and then others kind of gain ballots. <laughs> <laughs> so to be able to avoid that, uh, the agreements uh, on both sides of the political parties was what we will do is at each polling station, we're going to have a form that once you have, you know, people have cast their vote, you, you count how many votes were cast in this, in this polling station, you put that on this form 34A, you scan that form, mm. and then you simultaneously also send a text message to the head, to the, uh, to the, um, you send this form to the headquarters, but you also send this form to the electoral uh, returning officer. So we have the polling station. Yes. At the, uh, elec at the uh, constituency level, we also have the, 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 the other polling center, so to speak, that then uh, pretty much uh, totals all the number of the polling stations that are within that constituency. And then this form is 34B now. So this form 34B is also once uh, you as the constituency returning officer, you get results from all the different polling stations, you put that result, the total number of votes for each candidate on that form 34B, you also take up, you scan it, and then you send by text message to the uh, headquarters. Okay. And so that was one of the ways to avoid um, some ballots disappearing mm -hmm. while others are multiplying. Mm -hmm. And so a week before the elections happened, uh, Chris Musando, uh, the, 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 the guy who was tasked with the technology of making sure we have a, a functioning um, tallying system, went on TV and said, there's no way anyone is going to steal these elections. The following day, he was found dead and tortured. Wow. So the question then became, who killed Chris Musando? And so we, we, we move from there. Kenyans go to the elections and they cast the ballots. And so uh, three days, you know, go by. 
after the first ballot was cast, and the chairman of the IEBC, Independent Elections and Electoral um, Boundaries Commission, actually announces, you know, Uhuru Kenyatta as the president. But based on the information of the affidavit that was submitted to the Supreme Court in challenging this case, what the opposition, the coalition, NASA coalition says, the information they presented, and which is publicly available for anyone to see, they said it would not have been possible for the chairman of the election commission to actually know who won the election by the time he announced it because there was still around 11,000 from 34 Bs mm-hmm. missing. Yet to be that, okay. That's right. Yeah. So based on that, how could you have been able to make the decision that the president had won? Interesting. And so um, the way the Supreme Court was able to rule on this, and again, this is publicly available information, is in the Kenyan, we have the Kenyan Constitutional Elections Act also, which pretty much gives two um, um, ways in which an election, a contest election has to be evaluated on. So basically, when you present your case at the Supreme Court at the, for the presidential elections, the, the jurisdiction is only in the Supreme Court, and then the other lower seats are in the lower courts. So when an aggrieved candidate presents a case petitioning the outcome of the presidential election, uh, what the Supreme Court will eventually do is they will evaluate this case based on two uh, factors. So first of all, um, from a quantitative perspective, if you are arguing that 10 constituencies were affected by election malpractice, are the numbers of the votes affected enough to be able to overturn this election? And so for the 2013 election in Kenya, that was the, the criteria that was, was not met. Because even, again, Raila contested that election outcome, but the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the incumbents, okay. uh, of, of Huru Kenyatta. He was not the incumbent at the time, but he won the election based on that outcome. Mm. And so actually with my interview, I interviewed uh, the former uh, Chief Justice, uh, Willie Mutunga, uh, regarding this, because he was the Chief Justice at the time. So anyways, and so then the second uh, component is uh, you look at, um, the Supreme Court looks at uh, the violations, uh, so the qualitative uh, case. So were the violations that were committed in as far as uh, conducting this election are they enough to be able to also affect the quantitative outcome of the election? Or was it just that uh, one of the clerks forgot to put a zero here or a dot here, and really that is an an infraction, but it's not necessarily an illegality. So basically what the Supreme Court found was that although based on the quantitative uh, uh, assessment, they, they say that we have to be able to look at the qualitative assessment first to see what kind of irregularities and illegalities were committed in this election and see if they were able to affect the outcome of the, the, the quantitative right. component of the election. Right, so like is the quality of the infraction enough to affect the quantity of the votes? That's right. Okay. That's right. And so what they found is that because some... Some of the forms did not have 
any securities, you know, like there, was, there were no watermarks. Um, some of the forms had not been signed by the returning officers. Um, form 34C, the one that was used to announce the winner of the election, was not an official document, was not an official copy of the, of the ballot. So then it becomes really difficult for, for the Supreme Court to rely on the quantitative evidence that is available at the election because they're saying, okay, if the quality of the election was that there were no illegalities or infractions committed, then we can be able to evaluate how many votes were affected by what we are saying was uh, maybe some of these forms were not sent in. But we cannot be able to argue or we can be, not be able to evaluate the, the ballots that were cast because we don't know how credible they are mm. based on these infractions, based mm. on these irregularities and mm. the illegalities. So the whole election then is so now they called question. Yes, so then they nullify the election and Kenya becomes the only, the fourth country in the world to be able to do that and the first African country to actually nullify a presidential wow. election. So what has happened since that announcement and what do you think about the implications for the, for the future of elections? Or what's the, what's, what's the next step in any case for this election just passed? Yes. So what has happened since the Supreme Court nullified the election? Um, the opposition, of course, uh, the NASA coalition was happy with the outcome and the incumbent was not happy with the outcome. President Uhuru Kenyatta said here he disagrees with the outcome, but he respects it. Yes, I remember that, yeah. But what he also said is, let's win this election and then we'll sort them out. So the implications are that then if Kenya, the Kenya Supreme Court is going to nullify another election, um, what the legislature wants to put in place is to be able to make sure that all the seven justices have to agree before an election can be nullified. Because for this case, four out of six justices that were sitting on the bench, you know, they agreed that we needed to nullify the election, but then we had two dissenting opinions. Mm. So the majority uh, that agreed to the election were four. They the minority were two. Now, the minority have also given their position as to why they think the election should not have been nullified. But uh, what that means then is that um, going on, uh, you know, in the future, you know, Kenya has really set up precedence in terms of uh, the independence of the judiciary. And this is largely because of the constitution that was put in place in 2010 that actually allowed a more robust judicial, the judicial branch which literally has uh, equal powers with the legislature and the executive. And so a lot of provisions were put in the constitution to make sure that uh, the way they are appointed is, is, a, is a very rigorous process. Uh, they are vetted publicly. Uh, they have a security of tenure. Um, and so they, they are not really be held to the executive. They, they can be independent enough to be able to make uh, this type of decisions without necessarily fearing about their jobs. But um, so what is what 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 has been happening so far is the opposition has agreed yes with the outcome and they want another election. But what they are saying is we cannot go back to play this game with the same officials. Mm -hmm. And the, the language they have been using is um, how are you gonna know 
that this is the referee or this is the lineman when they're wearing the same uniform as the opposition. Mm. So they have singled out people that they, in the, in the electoral commission, who they feel bungled this election and they say, we cannot actually conduct these elections unless these people are relinquishing their positions. They're either fired or they resign. Mm. And the point they're making here is that if these are the people who are responsible for the mistakes that led to the nullifying of the election. And they are still conducting the same, the, 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 the upcoming election. How sure are we that they are not going to make the same mistakes? And so, uh, so that is what's ha happening. And so uh, the officials that have been singled out to be fired are saying we are not giving up our positions. We're going to stay until we conduct the next election. Wow. Now, the ruling party is saying, you, as the opposition, cannot tell an independent electoral organization what to do. You cannot fire them because they are an independent organization. So they are actually uh, supporting the electoral commission and asking that the same officials stay while NASA is saying we want these officials to, to leave. Actually, as, as of yesterday morning, uh, Raila Odinga had made the announcements that they were going to call for mass protest to force Ezra Chiloba, uh, the CEO of the Electoral Commission, to uh, resign. resign. But he said, I'm not resigning. And so there were people in the streets, and uh, they were met with a brutal force mm. from the government. So they tear gassed mm. and they were beaten up. So it's really interesting. We don't know how uh, this is going to be. Because NASA is maintaining that we are not going to the elections if we have these same officials conducting the election. And they are saying that we are not going to the election and there will be no election. Hmm. So we don't know what they're going to do to make sure that there is no election. They are not boycotting. They are saying that there will be no election if these officials are not uh, moved from power. Interesting. Are you free to share what your personal opinion is on whether or not these individuals should resign or be removed or... What are your so so? It's in my opinion that um, in any country that claims to be a democracy, uh, I if you are responsible for a mistake that has happened in a given organization, I think the best way that sh you should do is step away, so someone else can be able to do that job better than you did. And so here's the question. The ruling party has claimed, and, and, and um, at this point, I'm, I'm independent. I don't support Raila, I don't support Uhuru Kenyatta. But standing, like, just from an, observe, from, a, from an outsider looking in, what the ruling party has been saying is that this election was stolen from us. All right? And then um, they say we had won, but the Supreme Court actually you know, on frivolous grounds, nullified this election. And then the opposition is saying, no, we had won, but you stole the election because you manipulated the tallying, the return of the, 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 the votes. So the question as an outsider looking in is, if you were the ruling party, Jubilee, and you know these are the officials that messed up your, 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 your victory, I mean, is it in the best interest to have them move out so you can have... Individuals that you all, both parties agree on, 
that would be best to do that job. And so for me, I feel um, that although the argument is that there is not, they don't have enough time to have new officials put in place, but you cannot go back to conducting the election with the same people who bungled that exercise. I mean, if it was in this country, if you have been adversely mentioned, the honorable thing is you step aside and allow investigations. But the organization has to go on. So you step aside, someone else steps in and conducts that job for you. So that is my position. Mm. You are listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. Okay, and we're back with our guest who is Mishak Samati, who is a PhD candidate in political science at Georgia State University, and his dissertation is titled The False Promise of the Judiciary in Reducing Election Violence Among African Countries. And so now we're going to dive deeper into this specific research and your dissertation. So can you describe your research project uh, in terms of that non-political scientists such as myself can understand, <laughs> you know, what, what are you exploring exactly? Okay, sure, sure. So basically, um, my dissertation looks at, um, in the context of conducting elections, when opposition candidates uh, are unhappy with the outcome, uh, specifically if they feel the election has been stolen, how, what explains the way they respond to that. And so they're they, they pretty much, uh, let's say, two or three responses that can have. First of all, they can refuse uh, to be able to recognize that election outcome and go on the streets. Uh, they can also refuse to recognize that outcome, go on the streets, but also file a petition. And they can just uh, file a petition in a court of law without necessarily going out on the street. So what I'm looking at is, uh, you know, cost nationally in, uh, among the African countries for elections that I've been conducting since 1990 to 2012. I'm looking at to be able to see to what extent do the varying degrees of judicial independence influence the choices the opposition parties have in reacting to the uh, uh, stolen uh, election, uh, the election, so to speak. Okay. So why the judiciary bodies? Um, how did you uh, decide to focus on them? And what's your hunch about their role in election violence? And does your research so far confirm your hypothesis? Yeah, so, um, so, so, so I guess let me, let me start with, a, with, a, with an example. So for instance, if you are in a household, you know, if, if, if two people, if kids are fighting, you know, they're going to go to their dad or their mom to be able to help solve this dispute, right? And so for countries, uh, in the absence of um, non-functioning uh, judiciary, judicial bodies, then to a large extent, uh, the disgruntled parties are only left to be able to seek redress from, let's say, uh, the streets or, you know, uh, take, take the law into their own hands, so to speak. 
So I think that if um, the, the, the judiciary is make a lot of sense because uh, when an opposition candidate feels they have uh, rightfully so or maybe uh, so if an opposition candidate feels like they have lost this election and they feel it was not conducted in a, in a credible and verifiable way, what avenues are there for them to be able to uh, to contest this outcome. And so if you have a judiciary that is actually independent as an opposition candidate, you know that if you're going to file your case, uh, it will be ruled on impartially. But if you have a, a judiciary that is not necessarily independent, then you are kind of left in this uh, situation where you have to use violence strategically. Uh, do you use violence to be able to force the hand of the judiciary to be impartial in their ruling? Or do you just not contest that outcome in a court of law uh, in the first place? And so when I started this uh, project, I was, of course, looking at Kenya. And Kenya was my, my main case study. And I looked at the election violence that happened in 1992 and 1997, uh, pre-election violence. And then I looked at 2007. And uh, I also looked at 2012. So 2017 is happening while I'm writing my dissertation. Okay. And um, essentially what I look at, I look at the development of judiciary in Kenya, in the Kenyan case, from when Kenya gets uh, to start experiencing multi-party democracy to uh, across, across the different elections. And what I see is um, uh, in the first in the first two elections where we had uh, pre-election violence, for the most part, the judiciary was really dependent on the executive. The executive appointed them, he handpicked them, uh, and really their job pretty much dependent on whether the president say you have a job today or you don't. So it's not independent at all. That's right, not independent at all. And um, <laughs> I actually remember as I keep growing up, um, the president used to make public appointments on the roadside. He would be uh, driving down the street to go and inspect uh, development projects or to go launch a school and then he pulls over to address uh, the Wanainji or to address the people and then he says, oh today I have fired my vice president and so and so is now the vice president. Just some random person. Uh, so, so, so a case that I remember clearly the former Vice President George Saitoti was actually a professor at um, one of the Kenya universities, I believe Nairobi University. He was a math professor. He was not in politics. But the president had gone without a vice president for like a year and he pulls up on the side of the road and then he says, yes, I've appointed George Saitoti as my vice president. And so this guy is in class teaching and he's being told, oh, by the way, you are the new vice president. So. <laughs> So, so literally all the public servants used to have these small transistor radios and they would be listening to the news at 1 p.m. because 1 p.m. is when you find out you have a job or you don't have a job in, on the in 1 o'clock right, news. With the president in the administration. That's right. right that's right. And so, <laughs> so the, pub, the appointment of the judiciary was really, the, the, the legislature had no say in it and uh, it was virtually, and the judiciary itself had no say in it. So it was virtually... Uh, at the behest of the president to be able to make those appointments. And so what I argue is that under these circumstances, even if you engage as an opposition party, you engage in post-election violence, 
really it's not going to gain you any mileage because at the end of the day, you take this case to the court. Um, it's just going to be ruled in favor of the executive. And so there's two examples. Kenneth Motiba, who was the leading opposition candidate in 1992 and also to a large extent in 1997, did not agree with the outcome of the election. He said Moi had rigged the election. So he said, okay, I'm going to... He did not engage in post-election violence. He, lit, he went to the court to um, present his petition. But it happened that at that time, for you to actually launch, um, launch an election petition, you had to personally present uh, to... to uh, uh, is, is called a, you had to serve the petition to the mm -hmm. president. So he was time-barred. He couldn't launch a petition because there was no way he could get close to the president. In 1992, 1997, he was able to uh, uh, serve the, the Moy with the papers. But because he um, he's paralyzed, his wife signed the papers for him. And so it was he's thrown out. He was paralyzed. Yes, he was paralyzed because he was in detention without trial for... Mm. Before, while he was, uh, mm -hmm. while Kenya was fighting for multi-party uh, politics, he was one of the politicians who was thrown into detention. And so, uh -huh. while he was in there, he lost the function of uh, uh -huh. of, of his, his arms. He he's, he's paralyzed. So this this is before ninety two. So so yeah okay, okay. yeah. But so so he so his wife signed the papers for him, and so his case was thrown out on the technicality that you are the one who was supposed to have signed this paper. So really. This was just because the, the, the judiciary was beheld to the executive. And so when we fast forward to 2002, no election, and we have some other no violence, and we have some other explanation for why that happened. But in 2007, we actually have a massive post-election violence. And my finding from my case study, you know, interviewing the politicians and uh, um, the, the former chief justice and also uh, some of the human rights uh, activists in the country is that uh, in 2002 when Moi uh, uh, the new we had a regime change so Khan which had been power since the independence loses power in 2002 and we have Kibaki coming into power what he did and, and he was able to uh, bring out some judicial reform but this were half-hearted judicial reform. And actually, the, the former Chief Justice Kareti Murungi was on record saying that we're going to perform a radical surgery of the judiciary. But this literally ended up being that he was taking out the justice that had been appointed by the previous president and putting on his own men without necessarily giving them a lot of judicial independence mm. and so we have new uh, justices and we have some level of judicial power but really it was right there in the middle it was not completely independent neither was it completely uh, dependent and so what I'm arguing is that within that stage when um, you don't have a very robust independent judiciary that is when um, opposition parties will be able to use post-election violence strategically. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is um, the idea is that as a judiciary that is not dependent or independent, uh, you don't have security of tenure, uh, you don't have a lot of uh, judicial power, and so when you 
as a judicial member, you are presented with a condition of professional and political uncertainty, you are likely to be more impartial. And actually, this is a theory that has been advanced by a professor called Peter Van Duip, uh, using two case studies of uh, um, uh, Malawi and uh, Zambia. Mm -hmm. And so he finds that uh, when you look at some of these judges in the local courts, they were more impartial when they were in those conditions that uh, subject them to, uh, they, they don't know if they're going to keep the job, you know, they, they don't know who's going to be in, in power. So when you don't know who's going to be in power, you're more likely to be independent because you don't know who your next boss is going to be. And so uh, then we fast forward to 2012 uh, in Kenya in 2017. And so what happens in 2010 is we have a referendum and we have a new constitution and the first constitution ever since independence. So instead of just making piecemeal amendments that they were doing uh, with the onset of multi-party politics, Kenya actually had a referendum, and, and we have actually one of the most robust, robust um, uh, uh, constitution actually, like, like pretty much in Africa. And, and there's a lot of uh, judicial independence, the, the judicial power that is accorded to the judiciary. For the for anyone for the members of the judiciary, they have to be vetted publicly, so they're on TV. Uh, they have to declare their wealth, so everybody knows what they own, where, um, and then they ask questions based on their record of public service. Uh, if they have published anything, they ask you know those questions. Mm -hmm. So it's a, actually a public vetting process, and then there's a, a judicial service commission also, which uh, also vets. Um, the, the justices. And then, uh, best out of, for, from that, you will have, let's say, the, the, the parliament also vets uh, these this individuals who will serve on the Supreme Court. And what happens then is uh, the, the, the legislature will be able to present, let's say, five names, and from this, the president will only choose one. Uh, interesting. Okay. So any candidate that comes into this office has been rigorously vetted and also it's not necessarily that the president is actually nominating them the president is only picking one mm. out of the many mm -hmm. the so individuals that have been presented to him okay and so on top of that too uh, we have uh, a spell down in the constitution how they just the, the supreme court just so can be fired how they you know but this is new so this is new okay so this starts in 2010 okay. and so since 2010 with the new constitution Kenya has not had significant election violence that 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 what that similar to what was experienced in 1992, 97, and 2007. Okay. And so based on this, I actually take this um, a theory and I, I test it on African elections that have happened from 1990 to 2012, and I find the same relationship that you see there is more post-election violence by opposition parties or non-state actors in countries that are actually right in the middle. They are neither independent, they, they, they neither have a dependent judiciary or an independent judiciary. And, okay. And how many hmm. countries were in your broader So I have, I have 49 countries, uh, hmm. 49 countries and uh, 390 elections that have been conducted uh, since 1990 to 2012. Mm -hmm. Now, there are more elections, but the data I had uh, only goes up to 2012. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And your main case study is the main case study is Kenya. Kenya. Yes. Okay. So let me see if I'm following you correctly. So you talk about judicial systems and and judges that are in this kind of in between area where they are in in some ways appointed by the president, mm-hmm. and as but the president and who's ever holding that position as president could could switch at mm-hmm. any election. Mm-hmm. So they're not totally independent, meaning the, the executive branch is essentially picking them, but they are independent in the sense that they want to keep their job and they know that someone else might be in power a year, two, three years from now. That's the kind of in-between. And you're arguing, or your, your hypothesis is that it is in those types of judicial structures and, and dynamics that reduces the likelihood of pre- and post-election violence or post-election violence. So no, no um, okay. so, so you, you're almost there. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. <laughs> and this is good because okay. if you did not get it right, then some of my listeners probably didn't get it right yeah, there. Okay. So um, when you look at judicial independence and, and really, um, so, so we have uh, what is called de jure and de facto judicial independence. So basically, if, can you be able to rule uh, make a fair ruling and but on top of just making a fair ruling can you compel the person that you have found culpable to actually act or, or, or act on, on your ruling so for instance in let me give you the, the example the Kenyan example if the judiciary was existing within a quasi semi-independent state they could find that this they could nullify this election but the president would say no we are not we're, we're going to stay in power. We're not going to obey. So you can have the power to be able to make the ruling, but can you compel the actor to actually Go follow through? Right? Okay. Yes. And so in countries where you, you have some semblance of a judicial independence, whereby, yes, you have maybe you, the, the president appoints you, but maybe you can only be fired through an act of parliament. Okay. So there's, there's that. Those two powers are actually competing in how you keep your job uh-huh. and so in those sets of circumstances you are in the middle you are not necessarily independent and you're not necessarily dependent okay. on the executive so election violence is found in this middle area where the judiciary is not independent to be able to make an impartial ruling and compel the actor to follow through on that ruling Okay. Because at this extreme right, whereby you are an independent judiciary, like in this country, when someone is found, uh, you know, to have violated a certain, you know, rule, the court makes the ruling, and you're going to be arrested and you go serve your time. In some countries, a judge can find you, or you can, can find that you actually violate a certain rule, but you're above the law. You cannot be arrested. So the court cannot compel you to be a cannot compel the state security state forces to actually be able to to arrest you right okay and then you in the other in the very lowest extreme here is whereby you literally have the justices and the judges who are handpicked by the president and he fires you and hires you whenever he wants okay so the interesting part for this for this for what I found is this you would think and I went in thinking especially on this lower part where 
the justices are not independent. They are beholden to the president. We will likely more have violence because you right, know there's right. no recourse for you. You cannot go to the courts. The only option for you is to go right, to the street. Yeah. But I find that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. Because it turns out, uh, maybe this is already known, but the non-state actors want to be able to use this election violence in a strategic way. You just don't go out, you just don't go out on the street and 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 you know start killing each other because you are unhappy with the election. You want to be able to use that violence to change the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so if you feel that at this bottom end where the president controls the judiciary you are either just going to file your petition and hope that they rule in your favor or you are not going to engage in election violence at all. So, for instance, Angola just conducted the election in 2017. Lorenko, who took over from the, 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 the incumbent, who had ruled for like over 20, yeah. 30 years, yeah. he won the election. So, MPLA won the elections. The opposition, five opposition parties got together and said these elections were rigged. They did not engage in election violence. They went to the court. The court ruled in their favor, and they respected the outcome. Angola is one of the countries that has a dependent judiciary. It is not an independent judiciary. But then you look at Kenya, you look at Nigeria, and then you look at Zimbabwe in 20, 2009. Mm. You look at Ivory Coast in 2010, mm. the election between, uh, contest between Alassane Ouattara and... Uh, uh, Bagbo. Yeah. So those are some of the elections whereby the losing candidates actually used violence in addition to you know like going to the court. Or some of them, like the Kenya case 2007, they just bypassed the court and went to the streets right away to be able to force the hand of, of you know to be able to to create a situation in, in the candidates was unmanageable, and in this case invoke. The intervention of the international community. Mm. So mm. it's it's you, you have some countries that are actually you can be able to look at the election that have been conducted. You know, like you know, a country like Zambia, it has a a fairly robust uh, judiciary. Hakainde Ichilema lost the elections. Robust meaning independent. Yes. Okay. And so Hakainde Ichilema loses the elections, and uh, he goes to court to court. You know, Edgar Lungu is the current president. He goes to court to, you know, to challenge the election. But then the way they have it, they have it set up. In Zambia, you have to be able to, uh, you know, file your petition, and that petition has to be ruled on within two weeks. But <laughs> because of the the, the, sh the short time frame, the court was not able to rule, make that only within two weeks. So now they threw the case out on a technicality. But you know, Hakainde Ichilema did not call his people out on the streets. Museveni, right now, uh, you know, um, Babazi, the former prime minister, also when he lost in 2012, he filed the election petition in, 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 in the court. He did not go on the streets. And Uganda is also one of the countries that is actually on the lower end of, uh, you know, judicial independence mm -hmm. spectrum. Mm -hmm. So the countries which are in the middle that have been able to experience more post-election violence are the countries in which you have a judiciary that is neither independent or nor dependent. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like um, 
Mansfield wrote a, wrote, wrote work about uh, you know where civil conflicts are more likely to to occur, and he finds that countries that are neither autocracies or democracies mm -hmm. are the ones that are more likely to experience uh, you know civil conflict. Hmm. Hmm. What kind of impact do do you think this research, your research, your findings will have on constitution making, amending of constitutions in countries, in the, in the case of your dissertation, in African countries in particular, if if that does play out, where mm -hmm. do you think it might lead to some more authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning governments to say, we need to move more in that direction where we have uh, we, we don't want an independent judiciary because that will actually reduce the chances that violence will break out in in our country. So I will actually start by saying that um, that's that's a terrific question. But I'll start by saying that if you look at what's happening in Africa, you know a lot of these African countries started with you know experience with election violence. We ha I mean with uh, with with conducting multi-party elections, so they actually had term limits. Yeah, president can serve for two five-year terms. Yeah. But what we are seeing right now is that a lot of the presidents are actually abolishing the term limits right. and also lifting the age limit. So, <laughs> like, like, as of yesterday, the parliament in Uganda was trying to debate removing the age limit because when Museveni came into power in 1987, there was no multi-party politics. 1990 rolls around, they introduced multi-party politics, but he uses the parliament to actually abolish the term limits, and now he serves uh, for a long time. But then they had put an age limit clause in the uh, in, in the in the constitution. So if you are be above seventy four years old, you cannot vie for the president. Musabed is seventy two now. After he finishes serving this term, he just won 2016, he'll be, about, he'll be over 74. Now, the parliament is trying to make a way with that clause to lift the age limit. Uh, so you look at Idris Deby in Chad. He also came into power as a, as a rebel leader. He abolished term limits. So now he's serving forever. You look at a country like Cameroon with, a Paul, B, uh, with, with Paul Beer. He's been the only president literally since, independ since uh, independence, like up to today. <laughs> so some of these countries have had like a single president their entire life. And then you look at countries like Zimbabwe, Mugabe yeah. comes into power. You know, he was a prime minister first. And then 1984, 82-84, around there is when he becomes the president. And he's been able to use different ways to actually stay in power. So on the contrary... What I, I see, and if this research plays out, and, and you know, every theory has to be able to, to be empirically refuted. So if this theory doesn't work out, then uh, we, we're going to have to find a different explanation as to why we, we have a lot of these countries now and the president's trying to, to stick, to, to remain in power by actually using extrajudicial means. So what's going to happen is this. Most of the countries that we, in Africa, it's becoming increasingly difficult for an opposition candidate to win or to get access to power because when the incumbent gets into power, they use their majority in parliament to change the constitution so that actually they don't have any term limits mm -hmm. or they're lifting the age limits. So it's going to become a little bit more difficult 
And then, of course, they use all these ways to stay in power, whether they are stealing election stuff in ballot boxes, <coughs> using it for election violence, post-election violence, whatever it is. So they're using uh, um, uh, multiple ways of actually being able to stay in power. So what the opposition is doing also is they're saying, okay, I think we can be able to strategically use our uh, some other means like violence in the post-election uh, period to either get a coalition government or to get a court to be able to nullify an election or um, to get international, the international community to, to be able to, to intervene and at least have us also have access mm. uh, to power. So what I see is that the countries that are in the lower end, which are still under authoritarian regimes, some of these presidents will not live forever. The Paul Beers, the Museveni's, the Idris Debis, uh, Pierre Ngurunziza's, you know, uh, they are not going to live forever. So in the next 10 years or so, when they're no longer in the picture, we're going to have new people coming in and now they're going to be able to move these countries now into the middle where there's going to be more of a post-election violence. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so I think what, what, what I think from my, my own opinion and based on this research, is that there's value in being able to strengthen these judiciaries right now so that when we have uh, these countries now stepping into this middle area, we actually have a semblance of strength in those judiciaries to be, to be, to, to be independent enough to be able to mitigate the expected violence that is going to come while now we have all these competing groups you mm. know, vying for for political office. Mm. Okay, well, we're uh, um, uh, looking kind of beyond um, the judiciary aspect. Uh, I just wondered if you're looking ahead to post-dissertation and uh, what are the other aspects of uh, election violence that you find interesting and might, or even another theme that might be your next project after mm. the dissertation? Yeah, actually, one one of the other components of uh, you know election violence. I'm an election violence guy, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the really interesting part that I, I one of the other co interesting components is that you know looking at election or electoral rules. So, for instance, uh, most of the African countries, you know, ex use a uh, you know majoritarian system so basically is is what is called the fast past the post so if you're going to win the presidency win with a 50% plus 1 mm. and so this in a large in in, in a real in a, this type of electoral rules i feel like they they present a scenario of a um no zero sum game you know you know winner take all so in a large sense, you know, being able to use patronage and it benefits certain sections of the country. Um, and so I feel like the, these types of electoral rules, uh, to a large extent, exclude those groups that feel that they don't have the numerical strength to actually be able to get into power on their own. So um, one of the areas that I would really like to, to, to research more is you know, be able to maybe look at some of the other rules, you know, used around the, the, the world, you know, like a proportional representation. If, mm. like, for instance, in Kenya right now, we have devolution. So if you devolve power and resources to the lower level, to the lower level government, 
does that take away the attention from the presidency whereby every ethnic community wants to have access to the presidency? You know, if you are able to have roads, water, education through a devolved system of government, is that going to be better? And so in that sense then, you know, we have that concept of evolution. We also have that concept of um, proportional representation whereby people will be able to win seats, a uh, party will be able to win seats based on the number of uh, votes they get in a given you know, constituency and also across uh, the country. So for instance, if the winning party uh, you know, gets 60% of the, of, the, of the votes, of the cast votes, then they'll get 60% of the, of the seats. You know, whoever gets 20% gets 20% of the seats. The way it is right now, most of these African countries, they have a two-party system just similar to what we have uh, in this country, in the U.S., such that, um, yes, you have some of these briefcase political parties, which are parties in name only, but they don't have a secretariat, and, uh, you know, they really don't make a lot of sense. You have two parties that really then compete with each other, and when these party rules wins then the other one is left in the cold for five years mm -hmm. so we're coming to the end of our time but we have a, a couple more questions for you so i appreciate you taking the time um, with us as i listen to you talk about the intricacies of election processes the role that the judiciary plays in those the types of violence that can ensue before an election and after election you clearly know a lot more about kind of democratic systems and elections than most people. And so my question is, what is your current state of faith in democracy as a system? Knowing all that you know now and seeing it across various kinds of countries, the ways in which it can be manipulated, um, changed, altered, disrespected, you know, but also honored and, and respected, where would you put your faith in democracy as, as a system, mm. knowing now what you know? You know, you reminded me, uh, Chinua Chebe, one of the famous African writers, you know, he, write, he writes in, a, in Things Fall Apart, and he says that uh, since men have learned to shoot without missing the mark, birds have learned to fly without perching on the tree. Mm -hmm. So when African countries started experiencing the democracy, there was a lot of faith and expectations that we will be able to embrace democracy and be able to play by the rules. But it seems that as we learn the rules, the, the, the game of democracy, right. we find ways of going around it right. and we are just a democracy in name only. And so uh, there, there, there are various explanations to this. And so if you look at... Um, the way the Western democracies are actually developed. Uh, there's research that suggests that they were able to domesticate the institutions before they started actually experimenting with democracy. African countries, on the other hand, they're experimenting with democracy, but they don't have institutions to be able to mitigate those competing interests in the political arena. So, although I see um, that of course, uh, most of the African uh, leaders are trying to subvert the democratic process. I do think that, you know, 
we have uh, an opportunity to be able to engineer institutions that can be able to adapt with the changing times and the changing environment. So you cannot necessarily just transport the democracy we have in the U.S. and bring it to a country that doesn't have the necessary institutions to be able to uh, mitigate those competing interests. I think that a lot of uh, what we see in Africa is, especially for leaders who are hanging on for a long time, is because they have committed so many atrocities and they're afraid of losing power because the moment they lose power, whoever comes in is going to put them on trial. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the case of Yaya Jameh in Gambia, mm -hmm. you know, he had, when he lost the election in 2016 to Adama Baro, he says, I have lost. And then he changed his mind and said, I don't think yes, I have yes, lost. Yes, it's like a brief moment of <laughs> That's right. right yeah. And so with the force of Senegal, you know, and the ECOWAS African community, you know, uh, putting pressure on him to relinquish power, he couldn't stay in power. He left to seek political asylum, but he left with a bunch of millions from the, from the, you know, the government coffers. So I, I think we, we need to be able to provide an out, an outlet for these leaders who feel like if they leave power with all the atrocities they have committed in their countries, that they cannot stay in that country. And so that comes with being able to uh, maybe provide. Um, within the constitution provide some some ways in which these leaders can be accommodated even when they leave power. Mm. Uh, one of the things that is really huge in Kenya right now is um, you know the truth justice and through uh, justice truth and justice commission that was put together uh, to be able to look at some of the historical injustices that were committed in Kenya based on you know issues like Wagala massacre and, and the, the land issues um, but our current government is uh, afraid of actually being able to implement that process because of the fear that it's going to divide the country further. Mm -hmm. But the moment you don't address those issues, then they'll just fester, fester, you know, come election time. So, yes, um, democracy in Africa, as we see, we, we have some countries that have been able to demonstrate the way forward. Um, you know, Ghana is a, is a good example. Uh, they've been able to, you know, conduct free and fair elections. I mean, Ghana for the longest time was, was ruled by dictators. You know? mm -hmm. And now they have changed to a, a democratic system and people do uh, respect the election outcomes. And a lot of uh, countries are actually borrowing from them. For instance, mm -hmm. Kenya borrowed the electronic tallying system idea from Ghana because it worked so well there. But then it comes to Kenya, and then we find a way around it, mm -hmm. you know. So, mm -hmm. so, so people, uh, I think it's one of those things whereby we, institutions are going to grow and adapt to the changing times in Africa as, as we experience with democracy. actually does have some uh, implications with policy um, can you give us like 
three pieces of advice that you would give to folks who are worried about the outbreak of election violence? Uh, what would you say? And you know, countries in Africa, but also in South America and here mm-hmm. in the United States. I mean, all over the world. I think a lot of what you're studying and looking at and researching. Uh, may not manifest itself in land clashes like you mentioned earlier, yeah. but there are other forms of, of election violence or the threat or potential of election violence. Yeah. So to those folks who are interested in this topic and are grappling with what advice would can I get from an expert in this on how to reduce the chances that that will happen in my country or with my democracy, what would be like three pieces of advice that you would give to a policymaker or a civil society leader or a justice who's trying to keep people safe and reduce mm-hmm. violence? So you're right. Um, I think one of the other cases uh, in, in Bolivia, they are also talking about you know, removing term limits mm-hmm. so the kind of president can be able to vie again. And um, <clears throat> that presents a very difficult situation for the opposition parties who feel maybe they have better ideas on how to be able to move the country forward and yet they might not have that opportunity to have access uh, to political power. And so what I would say is, um, I think for me the most important part is um, uh, being able to invest in dispute resolution mechanisms and uh, empowering those dispute resolution mechanisms to make sure that they're independent and that they're predictable and that people actually, uh, the, the, the residents of the country and the political players in the country, when they disagree among themselves, they can be able to look to these institutions to be uh, impartial and independent. Um, and then the second thing I would look at um, election rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there, there are quite a, a number of examples that, you know, across the world we can be able to look at and see where election rules have been better and where they have been poor. And, and I think in diverse communities, majoritarian rules uh, don't seem to work out very well. Because if you are one of the minority groups and you don't have uh, protections within the constitution to guarantee uh, certain uh, rights for you as a, as a, as a minority group, then you have no recourse because the majority will rule and they will impose their will on you. And so in such countries, I think um, they might be better served by, you know, exploring electoral rules that allow even the smaller communities, the smaller groups to also have a say in the types of policies that that are being uh, debated around the political table, so to speak. and I also say that maybe um, so devolution, being able to devolve resources mm-hmm. from the central government and allowing uh, at least local governments to have a say in, in, in what they want to do with that tax money. And, and, and so I, I think you know, a lot of African countries would be able to benefit from that, from development and being able to, to take away a lot of the the financial might that the executive wields. So when you do that, to a large extent, you're giving power to the local governments. And so me as a voter, I can say, uh, even if I don't have, we don't have a presidency, but I have a governor, I have a, um, a senator who's closer to, to me in terms of a social distance, I can be able to talk to them and I can feel that I'm 
represented there and I can have a say in the type of uh, uh, public goods that I want for mm -hmm. my own constituency or for my own city. Interesting. And perhaps the fourth is um, conflicting parties could enjoy a meal together at the International House of Pancakes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mishak uh, Samati, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a real honor to meet you, to hear your story, and learn about your work and research. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And Lily, thank you for co-hosting yeah, today's thank episode. Thank you, Darren. It's great to get the Peace Scholars on and the Peace Frequency. Certainly. And like she said, you've been listening to the Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. The Peace Frequency is produced by the Global Campus, USIP's online learning platform designed to teach and learn critical peacebuilding skills. You can learn more about the Global Campus at usipglobalcampus.org. Our theme music for today's episode is composed by B.O. Crew. You can check out their free music at ccmixter.org. Our graphic designer is Manuel Leon, and I've been your host, Darren Cambridge. Be sure to check the Peace Frequency website to access a recording of this show and other archived episodes of the podcast. The URL is usipglobalcampus.org slash peace-frequency. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, keep learning, supporting, and building peace. Peace.